The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. The other two services were a little sleepy, you know, because they'd lost their hour's sleep. But you, you guys don't have an excuse, yeah? You, you guys have, have had, you're late anyway, right? So let's turn to Mark chapter 12, and, and it begins like this. It says, He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray. So, Father, we we know that there was a, a time where people who believed they were your people were waiting to hear from you waiting for you to come to them in the person of Jesus. And then you came to them and you spoke to them and they didn't hear, they didn't listen, they didn't recognize your visitation. Father, we pray that we would not make the same dark and terrible mistake. When you speak to us, even this morning, we would be open to everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at two accounts this morning. First of all, the story that Jesus tells and then the story about Jesus. The story Jesus tells is the story about the vineyard and the evil tenants who are running that vineyard. And then there's the story about Jesus, about how Jesus responds to a particular question concerning paying taxes to Caesar. And both of these stories, though they seem divergent and very different from each other, we're going to see that the story Jesus tells and the story about Jesus are actually linked in a a very important way, at a very deep level. And we'll see how that is in in a moment. Now, first of all, let's start with that story that Jesus tells, the the story about the vineyard and the tenants who are running the vineyard. This, This type of story, as most of you probably know, is called a parable. 
Now, sometimes when we think of a parable, we, we think of a, a story, a teaching tool to kind of get a point across in a clever way. Or when we think of a parable, we may think of a, a kind of a, a cautionary tale, a story with a moral tagged on the end. Or perhaps we think of it as an illustration or example of something or other. Well, a parable contains elements of all of these things, of course. But a parable is so much more than that. It's so much more than that. In order to understand what a parable is and what a parable does, I think it's important to contrast the parable with another type of story. Right, the parable is a type of story, right? Uh, but then I'd like, I think it would be important at the front end here to contrast that type of story, the parable, with another type of story. And here's the other type of story I'm thinking of. Here's, here's an example of it. The earth is flat. Okay, that's hardly a story, but it's part of a story. And if you believe, if you know that the earth is flat, then there's certain things you're not going to want to do. Like you may not want to drive too far in any particular direction because you might fall off the edge of the earth, right? There'll be times when you'll think, okay, we've gone too far, time to turn back around. If you know the earth is flat, you know what you fear. If you know the earth is flat, you know what you hope for. You, you hope to live toward the center of that flat earth, far away from the edge of all things, if you know the earth is flat. Some stories are like that. They may be a true story, or they may be completely fictitious. That's kind of irrelevant, actually. But for the, the important thing is this. For the people who believe that story, that story establishes the boundaries of their reality, and it brings stability to their lives. That, that's one of the advantages of these big stories like this, is that they bring stability, a sense of safety and security, um, a sense of certainty. Because, you know, you know where you are in this world and you, and you know what to do. And we have a name for stories like that. And we call them meta-stories or meta-narratives. A meta-narrative is really just a, a, a shorthand for big overarching story that establishes the boundaries of our reality and brings stability to our lives. But instead of having to keep saying big overarching story which establishes the boundaries of our reality and brings stability to our lives, that we can save some time this morning. We just use a shorthand, okay? So meta-story or meta-narrative. So let's say you're living in this meta-story, this meta-narrative, right? And you're enjoying that warm feeling of, of knowing that the earth is flat so you know where you are, that warm feeling of security and stability and safety because you know where you are, you know what to do. And then along comes someone who's been living in this story with you and they say, look, I've been making some really interesting calculations and I've been making some really interesting observations. And you know what? You all are wrong. You, you're just wrong. The earth is not flat, it's round. It's a sphere, it's a globe. <laughs> Imagine what that does. What does that do? I mean, in this case, it literally turns their world upside down. When you first hear a story like that, all your sense of place in this world, your security, your safety, your certainty, that all goes out the window. It's all in jeopardy, right? And, and when you first hear a story like that, you don't feel like you've got a good sense of direction. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You feel a little lost and, and disoriented, not quite sure where you are. When you first hear a story like that, right, it, it doesn't bring stability, but it does quite the opposite. It can often be dangerously destabilizing. And we have a name for those kinds of stories too. And we call them parables. 
You see, parables function in the same way as the, the man who goes to an entire world that believes that the earth is flat and says, no, 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 the earth is not flat. The earth is round. It's a sphere. It's a globe. The parable functions in the same way as the man who goes to an entire world who is thoroughly convinced that the, the earth is at the center of the universe and says, no, 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 the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth goes around the sun. You see, there are different types of story, uh, but if we were to put them on some sort of spectrum, some sort of scale, uh, parables would be at the exact opposite end as meta-narratives. Because meta-narratives, that kind of story, establish reality and bring stability to our lives. Parables turn the world upside down. So, when Jesus is sharing a parable... When Jesus starts to talk here about vineyards and he starts to talk about the evil tenants who are running those vineyards, he's not just using a, a, a kind of an illustration or, or example of something or other. He, he's not just uh, telling a cautionary tale with a moral tag on the end. It's much more than that. Jesus is turning their world upside down. Jesus is destabilizing their carefully balanced lives, their carefully balanced world. Jesus is, is leaving them lost and disoriented because that is what parables do. As, as one author puts it, parables pour fire on the earth. Parables pour fire on the earth. And, and here's how Jesus is pouring fire on the earth in this parable. So, so the, the meta story, the meta narrative which the Pharisees were all living in was this. This was part of Jewish history. Babylon had crushed Israel. They had devastated Israel and taken them off into captivity. Now in the place cast in the role of Babylon was Rome. Rome was their new Babylon. Rome devastated Israel. Rome uh, oppressed Israel. And the Pharisees, they cast themselves as what? Well, as the heroes, of course. They cast themselves as the prophets of old. The prophets who were always calling Israel back to God, calling Israel back to covenant faithfulness. They cast themselves in the line of the prophets. And Jesus comes with his parable and he says, no, no, the earth is not flat, it's round. With his parable, Jesus says, no, the earth is not at the center. The sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth goes around the sun. He says, you think that you are faithful to God's covenant. You think that you are true Israel. You think that you are in the line of the prophets. But you're not. In fact, you are in the line of the people who killed and murdered and put to death the prophets and everyone God sent to you. And as the words fell from Jesus' lips, as this parable comes out of Jesus' mouth, <laughs> the Pharisees couldn't help but draw the shocking conclusion that Jesus was making. You, you are Babylon. You are the oppressor of my people, of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet says this. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Does this sound a little familiar? should do. He goes on. He says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed and I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. You see, Jesus' parable is straight out of Isaiah chapter 5. And so this would have been very, very familiar to his listeners, the people who were hearing this parable. They would have immediately recognized the imagery from Isaiah. And verse 3 of this is particularly poignant because he says, now judge between me and my vineyard. And, and they do. The people in Jesus' parable do just that. And they choose the vineyard. They choose their land, their inheritance. They choose themselves over God. And they say, look, let's lay a trap for the sun. Let's kill the owner of this vineyard. And then it will become ours. I just want to stop and make an application point here. Because this is a story about people who believe themselves to be God's own people. I mean, they were thoroughly convinced of it. And yet, they couldn't stand to hear the voice of God. In fact, they did everything they could to silence the voice of God. And I kind of get why the Pharisees ended up playing out that role. Because in a, in a time of foreign occupation, I mean, think, put yourself in their position, in a time of foreign occupation, the last thing you want to hear is, love your enemy. Pray for those who willfully use you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. If a man makes you carry, his, a Roman soldier makes you carry his bag one mile, go with him too. Turn the other cheek. This is the last thing they wanted to hear in a foreign occupation. And so, and, and so they did their best to silence the voice of God. I understand. I'll tell you why I want to silence the voice of God at times. Because the voice of God asks me to be generous when I want to be tight-fisted. The voice of God asks me to be hospitable when I want to close my door and I want to say, this is my place. The voice of God asks me to forgive when I would rather hate. Have you ever been there? The voice of God asks me to be sacrificial when all I want to do is seek me and my own life and seek it for myself. The voice of God asks me to be loving and kind and compassionate just when I don't want to be. There are all sorts of reasons why I want to silence the voice of God. I'm sure you have your own in your own, circumstances, your own situations. Now they silence the voice of God by killing the prophets and by killing uh, those that God sent to them and eventually God's own son. They kill Jesus. Now we're not going to go out and kill a prophet but all of this, this is a scary thing, all of this was done in the name of God and in the guise of religion. It was all done in the name of God and in the guise of religion. And I think that we can actually do all of this and silence the voice of God, even as we read the word of God in the name of God, in the guise of religion, even as we read the word of God. I think it's actually possible. We have methods, uh, we have mechanisms for silencing the voice of God, even as we read his word. 
Take, for example, this parable. If we take this parable or any of the parables and turn them into nothing more than a cautionary tale with a, a, a short story with a moral tag on the end, if it's nothing but a teaching tool to get the point across in a clever way, if, if it's nothing more than a kind of illustration of ex, or example of something or someone else, then we're already avoiding what a parable is and what a parable does. The, the question for all of us this morning is, are we willing to let this parable, as all of Jesus' parables, turn our world upside down? Are we willing to let this parable and all of Jesus' parable, all of his words, to, to leave us disoriented and, and lost for a moment? so that God can reorient our hearts and our minds and our lives back toward himself. <laughs> well, it's no, no wonder that, that this is the turning point in God, Mark's gospel. I mean, up until this point, the gospel of Mark has been about the life of Jesus. For the most part, it's been focusing on Jesus' life, but now this is a pivotal moment, the turning point in the gospel of Mark, and from here on out, it's going to be about the death of Jesus. That that cloud is looming overhead, because now the Pharisees decide they're going to plot how they can trap him and how they're going to get him killed. That's what they're they're going to do. They're going to... And this brings me to just one final point I want to make about parables, and then we'll move on to the next story, okay? Parables have the uncanny ability to not only describe a situation, but to create the situation they describe. Here's what I mean. No sooner has Jesus got done telling them this, this story about these evil, uh, this vineyard and the evil tenants who are running this vineyard who are laying a trap for the son of the vineyard owner, then then they're out laying a trap for Jesus, laying the trap for the Son of God himself. Do you see what I mean? By parables have the ability to, to not only describe a situation, but create the situation they describe. Because they force people to make a decision, and before you know it, before they knew it, these Pharisees were living out the parable, the story they just heard. And this, of course, is why I said earlier that these two stories, the story Jesus tells and the story about Jesus, we're about to have a look at, they're linked at a, at a, very, in a, at a very deep level and in, in an important way because one is the living out, is the fleshing out of the other. One's a fulfillment of the other, if you like. Jesus says in verse 10 and 11, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus reveals himself in this parable as the cornerstone from Psalm 118. That's what he's quoting there, Psalm 118. He's saying, look, I'm the stone the builders rejected. I'm the cornerstone, the one that God's going to use to build his kingdom. And as he reveals himself, their response to him reveals who they are. They reject the cornerstone and they start to live out their part in the parable. So let's, let's see how they do that. So Mark says later they sent some of the members of the Tea Party and some Obama supporters to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, it doesn't say that. It says this. But if, if you want to feel the tension of this moment, if you, want to feel, if you want to understand the predicament that they're trying to push Jesus into, if you want to understand the kind of trap, the type of trap that is being set here for Jesus, then this is it. This is it. The Herodians and the Pharisees showing up together. Are you kidding? 
that this is an odd couple, right? And they've come, this odd couple have come, and they've determined they're going to get Jesus to nail his colors to the mast. They're going to get him to show his hand. He's going to reveal, they're going to get him to reveal his, who he is. They're going to get him to reveal whether he, for once and for all, to the world, are you a patriot or are you a traitor? That's what they're going to get him to show. But here's the catch. The Herodians and the uh, Pharisees, much like the Tea Party and Obama supporters maybe, the, the, the Herodians and the Pharisees had completely different definitions of what it meant to be a patriot and what it meant to be a traitor. So on the one hand, you, you had the Pharisees, and they would, they kind of, you know, we all know people like this who kind of look down their nose on the rest of the world, right? They, they, they kind of looked at all the Jews and said, well, if you're not following the law the way we do, you, you'll compromise Jews. But they would have looked at the Herodians with even greater disdain. They would have looked at the Herodians and said, not only are you compromised in the way that you follow the law, but, but you guys support King Herod, and King Herod supports Caesar in Rome, and so in a roundabout way you are supporting this Roman pagan foreign occupation. So, therefore, you are traitors. You, you don't even deserve the name Israel. Well, the Herodians would have looked at the Pharisees and they would have shrugged their shoulders and said, what are you talking about? We're not traitors, we're patriots. We're doing what it takes to survive. The survival of Israel depends on this. We support Herod, of course we do, because Herod supports Rome. And you don't go up against Rome without getting crushed. How stupid could you be? So we're not going to go up against Rome because that would be national suicide. We're just not going to... So look here. King Herod is on the throne. We support him. If you go against him, you're the traitor. That's treason. So you see the predicament. On the, on the, on the, each party wears the badge of patriot, and they point the finger and say, you're treasonous, you're the traitor. That's what's going on. And, and this un, these unlikely bedfellows, this odd couple, they come to Jesus, and they have this brilliantly crafted question. They say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar. Should we pay taxes or not? Now here's the thing. If Jesus answers just a straightforward yes, go ahead and pay the tax. If that's a straightforward yes, um, then, then he's, he's just a sellout. He's just as compromised as everyone else. He doesn't have the backbone to stand up against his foreign occupation. And he becomes marginalized. He becomes irrelevant. And his kingdom movement dies. If, if you're not sure about that, imagine someone in the American Revolution saying, oh, just keep, keep paying taxes to good old King George. Right? Keep paying taxes to, to good old England. Right? And, and don't worry about representation. Don't, don't, what happens to that guy? Right? Marginalized. Makes himself irrelevant straight away right? in that situation. But if Jesus gives a straight out, no, do not pay the taxes, well, now the Herodians will immediately label him enemy of the state. And they will label him a traitor in, in that sense. He's an enemy of the state. He is a traitor. So this is a very precarious moment, not only for Jesus, but for all of Israel. But because last time they had an anti-tax revolt, it was within living memory of this event, actually, about a couple of decades or so earlier. Last time they had an anti-tax revolt, the Romans came in, they put down the violence with violence, and they crucified, they put on crosses thousands of Jewish people. Thousands of Jewish people were put on crosses. So Jesus is in danger of sparking. If he says, don't pay the tax, he's in danger of sparking that kind of bloodshed and violence. So if you've ever been backed into a corner, 
right? And, and, you, and there's no right answer. I mean, you know, whatever you say, you're going to be wrong. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Have you ever been in that situation? This is that situation. Right? So, so no matter how Jesus answers, one group or the other is going to use his answer against him. Well, they might have done had Jesus' answer not been so brilliant. I mean, it is, Jesus' answer is short. It, it, it is brief. It has to be because in this situation, you don't want to get into a long debate with these different parties in front of this crowd. That could be disastrous. So his, his answer has to be short and, and it, it is brief, but it, it is led with meaning and it is just brilliant. So, so here's the first part of Jesus' answer. Here, here's what he does. His first move is this. He says, show me a coin. And he says, whose image is this on this coin and whose inscription is this? And at that point, that's his first move. That's his first point. And, and I can tell you now, there are people in that crowd who are watching who would just start laughing. And some of them would be laughing in their sleeves to try to cover it up, suppress their laughter. They'd have been like, oh my goodness, did you just see what he did? He, he, I thought he was backed into the corner. He just pushed them into a corner. He just turned the tables on them, just like that. Now, you and I, we might be watching and thinking, well, I don't, I don't see that he's, made a, he's getting ready to make a point, but he hasn't made a point yet, has he? He hasn't made a move yet. Oh, but he has. Yeah, you see, the move he's made is this. For many Jews, even to gaze, yes, even to gaze on such a graven image would be wrong, would be sinful, would be blasphemous. But to be caught in possession of such an object, to, to be carrying around a graven image with you, it meant that these people were already deeply compromised. But Jesus has to rub it in. He asks, whose inscription is this? And again, he doesn't have to ask them to, 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 to read the inscription out for him. Everyone in that crowd, everyone there that day knew exactly what it said on the coin. And again, they would have been laughing, thinking, oh my God, look what he's just done. The point was crystal clear. You see, what it said on that coin was this lovely inscription that came with that image. And it said, Julius Caesar, son of God. It was a blasphemous inscription, Caesar, son of God. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Caesar, son of God, for all the thousands of rules that they had to follow. And Jesus shows them you're not even keeping the first two commandments, which have to do, which have to do with worship. This is why here at TBC, we're really not too keen on handing out a list of rules for everyone to follow. Now, rules have their place, but, but what happens very often is you have a set of rules, and what you find is that they're not sufficient. So you have to come up with another set of rules to make sure that you're following those rules properly, and then you have to come up with another set of rules to make sure, right, you get the picture. And so before you know it, you're, just, you're drowning in rules. It's too many. You can't keep up, right? This is how legalism gets started. And so we're not particularly interested in handing out lists of rules for you to follow, because ultimately, our sin is not to do with a lack of rules, Nothing to do with the lack of, our sin is nothing to do with the lack of rules. Jesus shows right here in this passage, Jesus shows in this moment that, that there is something much, a much deeper mechanism at work, something much darker 
is at work. Our sin has to do with not following a set of rules. It has to do with worship. It has to do with false worship, and it has to do with idolatry. Whose image is this, and whose inscription is this? When God looks at us, whose image does he see, and whose inscription is written on our hearts? Uh, Another way of asking this question, which I think is a question for us as well, whose image is this, and whose inscription is this? We could ask, what has our affections? What has our hearts and minds captivated? What are we building our lives on other than God? Early church father, St. Augustine, describes our sin this way. He says, all of our sin is really a disordering of our loves. It's a disordering of our loves. In other words, we take the thing that we should love the most, and number one, and we make it number two. And we take the thing that we should love as number four, and we make it number one. You see the disordering of our loves. So in other words, if I love my reputation more than I love truth, I'm going to be a liar. And I'm going to lie through my teeth. I'm going to become a liar, and I'm going to keep on lying. If I love... My reputation more than I love truth. It's a disordering of our loves. If I love my, um, if I love making money more than I love my my friends and family, then I'm going to neglect my marriage. I'll neglect my kids. I will neglect my friends. Those relationships will all be neglected. If I love making money more than I love my friends and family, and and this always, this disordering of loves always ends in disaster, and it always ends up. With, with brokenness. Your idols will crush you. Your idols will eat you alive. Your idols will eat you alive. And the only way that we can reorder this disorder, reorder our loves, is to make God supreme, to worship Him only. Uh, one author anticipates our protest. And he says, I'm just working hard to, to be good at what I do. I'm just seeking to find someone to love me. I'm working out so I can be a good steward of my body. I'm working hard to accomplish something in politics or business or to have a good career. I'm working just to make a little money for security. Or provide for my family. Is that right? Is that really what we're doing? Or is it worship? Are we worshipping? Our sin is not about a bunch of rules. It's about what we worship. And it's about idolatry and the disorder of our loves that idolatry brings. The second part of Jesus' answer is this. He says, give pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And it says they were amazed at him. I mean, they, they didn't know how to answer him. You know, some people think that what Jesus did there was tear the world in two and say, here you go, God, here you go, Caesar, divide the spoils between God and Caesar. This, this is a secular realm, this is a sacred spiritual realm. God, you take care of this, Caesar, you take care of that. There's plenty to go around. He's being paternal to God and, and Caesar. He's saying, you should get along, Let's just learn to make room for each other. 
He's, he's dividing the world into two and, and show, dividing up the spoils. That can't possibly be what Jesus means. Because Jesus understood, Jesus understood that the earth is, the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In Jesus' mind, there wasn't a square inch of our reality, of our universe that didn't belong to God, that God didn't have a rightful claim over. At the same time, Jesus understood the counterclaim that was being made by Caesar. The earth is Caesar's and all that is in it, the the world and all who live in it. The idea that Jesus was simply tearing the world in two and dividing up the spoils between God and Caesar and telling them to come on, let's learn to share with each other, is absurd. It's a a complete misunderstanding of, of the counterclaims and the mutually exclusive claims that are being made here by both God and Caesar for the same piece of property. And frankly, I don't think people would have walked away dumbfounded and stunned and realizing, oh my goodness, I don't know how to answer this guy. They would have ridiculed that kind of answer. No, Jesus' answer is a lot more subtle than that. That's why it leaves them dumbfounded. And and so here's here's what Jesus is doing. I think in in a highly charged in a very highly charged political situation, sometimes the only kind of response you can give is is a coded response, a coded one. And I think that Jesus framed his answer here in just such a way that his answer could be heard as just such a coded response. And so here's how to listen to this coded response that Jesus is giving. Okay, you're going to have to follow a little closely here and and then we'll finish up, okay? Every year at Hanukkah, the Israel would celebrate... The Maccabean Revolt. And it was called the Maccabean Revolt because a guy called Judas Maccabeus had led this revolt and they had kicked out the pagans who had occupied them. Not the Romans. This was some time before that. Another occupation. They kicked them out. And so every year they celebrated this great revolt. It's like celebrating 4th of July. Kicked out the Brits. That's great. So it's this celebration. Every year they would retell the story like we do at Thanksgiving or like we do at Christmas. And it's amazing, isn't it, the details that you remember about stories. Sometimes it's not just the details of the story, but we remember certain people telling the, retelling the story, retellings of it. So, you know, sometimes we remember, that's the true meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown, right? And, and we hear the... So they didn't remember the, the voice of a cartoon character, Linus, but they did remember the words of the uh, Judas Maccabeus' father, his dying word, the father of the leader of the revolt, his prophetic and dying words. That's what they remembered. And his dying words were this. He said, Judas Maccabeus has been a mighty warrior from his youth. He shall rally around you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong done to your people. So he's prophesying this revolt that will take place around his son, Judas Maccabeus. And his dying words are this. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus says, and to God what is God's. This would have immediately been heard as a revolutionary saying. Pay back to Caesar what he's owed. Render to Caesar what he deserves. What had Jesus just done? Had he told them to revolt or he told them to pay the tax? He had done both. He had done neither. Nobody could deny that this saying was revolutionary, but nor could anyone say that Jesus had forbidden payment of taxes. He wasn't advocating compromise with Rome, but nor was he advocating straightforward anti-tax revolt that would end in violence. You see why I say his answer is short, but it is brilliant, and it is led with meaning. 
what Jesus does here is he avoids the either or, the either or that they're trying to push him into. And he points to his own kingdom agenda as the radical response to their situation. Give to God what is God's. Stop holding back the very thing that God wants, which is you, yourself. Work for once in your life. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Have no other gods before him. And as you worship him, you will reflect his image. Because you are God's, just like the, the coins were meant to reflect, that carry the image of the emperor to the ends of the earth, you are God's coinage. You are supposed to reflect the image of God. And so he says, yeah, revolt against Caesar. Don't use his methods. If you violently revolt, you're just, you're just, responding, you're just using the tools of this world. Instead, Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for those who willfully use you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. And if a Roman soldier gets you to carry his bag one mile, go with him too. And all those other things that we don't want to hear God saying. I'll finish with this brief story. A friend of mine, um, when he was in India, met a pastor whose church had been burned to the ground. And this pastor went and, and removed a, a kind of a, a piece of, of from the burnt up wood from this church that was burnt to ashes and my friend asked him what are you doing with that and he said I'm, I'm going to keep this why, why do you want to keep it he says because I want to remember and when we find these people this neighboring village or whoever it is who's done this when they finally start following Jesus and they worship Jesus as God and King and Lord of all the earth we're going to remember together and, and we're going to celebrate and my friend said he hates that guy. <laughs> and I think I know what he means. Let's come before God in prayer. Father, we so often come to you and we say that we want to hear your voice. Please speak to me, Jesus. And sometimes when you speak, we wish you hadn't. Father, we don't want to be like those who missed you and silenced your voice in the name of God and in the guise of religion. Father, help us to remain open to having our world turned upside down. Help us to remain open to being left disoriented and lost for a moment so that you can reorient our lives, our hearts, our minds back to you. Father, we want to, to carry your image into this world. Help us to reorder our loves, to make you supreme to worship you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we're dismissed.